0: This is a podcast from Cambridge Assessment. For more downloads, visit cambridgeassessment.org.uk. I thought this would be quite an easy presentation to prepare because I was a member of the advisory group which was set up by NAA on uh, single-level tests, and I joined a number of people such as uh, Joanne Baird and Gordon Stobart, Chris Wetton on that group. So inside knowledge in terms of the development of single-level tests. I was in QCA uh, since its inception with Paul and colleagues, um, and so in on kind of middle and latter stages of national assessment to date. Um, So I thought, okay, very, very easy. And then it became really, really difficult, because I didn't know how, uh, how much detail to go into in terms of the history of national testing to understand where we are now. Um, how much to go into uh, aspects of curriculum, schools, organisation of the education and training system, the overall purposes of national testing. Uh, And so it went on. And I just hope I've got the balance right. Um, I'm not going to explain the kind of detailed mechanics of national assessment in terms of its history. I'm not going to explain, you know, what tests there were at a particular time. What I'm going to try and look at is underlying trends... In the development and national assessment, and I will go into the model of single-level tests in some detail. Not only as a particular model, but but why it is that that model is where it is in terms of government policy. Why it's the preeminent um, research project, development activity in relationship to national assessment. There's time for questions. So you know, if I don't cover areas which you want more detail on in terms of the operation of tests or detail of SRTs or details of, of policy management, we can go into those details. Now, I, I want to point that there for the laser and there for moving it, so let's hope it works. Right. You know, how do we position assessment? I and mean, when we talk about the national curriculum these days, although there are reviews of Key Stage 3, the re- primary review by Jim Rose, Actually, if you look at the number of column inches devoted to things around the national curriculum, it's assessment which is preeminent in people's minds. That's what bothers us uh, in the press and in, in terms of each summer. Should it be assessment in service of the curriculum? Yes, of course it should be. I mean, assessment should follow our aspirations for what we're trying to achieve through the curriculum. And I think we've lost a focus on that and lost a sense of that. Now, I'm not going to talk about the curriculum at great length, but I am going to point out some problems and some issues and some benefits of the national curriculum. So, although I'm going to talk fundamentally about assessment, there are curriculum matters we have to attend to, because it's only through the national curriculum do we understand why we've got national assessment. Is it, is it national assessment? Um, well, it was, um, sort of, because, of course, it included Wales, and now it doesn't. So, when we talk about national assessment, we're talking about assessment in England. And the Welsh have gone down a different route after the Doherty Review. And I mentioned that in passing because of some of the things that they were trying to do and some of the things that they've put in place. But I'm going to focus on England. So, when I talk about national assessment, I'm not talking about the UK, I'm talking about England. Yes, of course, I put up TGAT. Um, but it's right to start there, really, because the task group on assessment and testing was tasked with specifying not only what the shape of national assessment arrangements should be, but why they should be in place and what they should be for. And the notion was there should be a balance between those four purposes. You'll find in the TGAT report, as it exists now, if you can find a copy, and there aren't that many around, an annex. And it's an annex of a letter sent by uh, Ken Baker to Paul Black, and there it said that what we really are very, very interested in are the evaluative uses of the assessments for monitoring the system and for monitoring schools and making schools accountable. And that, of course, in many ways has become a critical feature of the national assessment arrangements as we have them. I'll come on to back to these, these functions um, repeatedly through this presentation. People say 1992, but it's not that simple. That, that isn't when the first tests were. That's actually the schedule of when they were introduced. And they came in at different points at different key stages. And um, they came in at different times if you're in Wales, to England, and so on. 92 is a good average across those dates. Um, but it was as, as late as, ni- as as 94 Sorry, for, um, for uh, key stage two tests in Wales. Um, and uh, as early as, as 91, in relationship to the Key Stage 1 tests and the Key Stage 3 tests. And, and Diane Shorox-Taylor, in a very good text, National Testing Past, Present and Future, a bit dated now but still very worthwhile reading, um, she described these as the key technical influences on the form of the tests. The fact that we had new GCSE examinations which were designed to be for everyone and not just for a particular ability range. Graded tests were pretty important because they were the attempt to get true criterion referencing established in the system. Profiling and Record of Achievement, the PRAISE project, in which um, a couple of colleagues, Desmond Nuttall and Patricia Broadfoot, um, led the, the the national work, was really very important because. There, they tried to construct a bank of statements which could be used for criterion referencing of children's experience as they pass through education. And then the work of the APU. The APU, of course, was disbanded on um, implementation of the national test because it was believed that if you just added up the results of each and every child, you'd get a view on national standards. So, why on earth continue to have a matrix, a complex matrix based sampling approach? to assessing children's underlying attainment in order to get a fix on national standards. It seemed absolutely redundant. Um, We always argued um, from inside the technical community that, that it was essential to have such a survey, and the expert group has recently recommended it. And we understand those recommendations have been adopted by government. So the APU went, but its work was very influential. They developed very interesting tests in science, in a broad range of subjects, maths and English, Interesting items, pre-tested, known performance characteristics and, and really introduced a, a new technology of assessment to this country. Now I sat down and thought, I know, look, there's bound to be you know, a, a simple pattern to the development of national testing arrangements, you know, much like to the Roman Empire or other phases of history. You know, It's going to be people putting stuff together, getting it in place. Um, it kind of beds down, then you get a few accumulated problems, unintended consequences, then something terrible happens and something new comes along. And um, these don't apply at all. It it's just didn't work. There are no obvious phases to the history of national testing in this country, which first came in round about 92, and here we are in 2009. Throughout the commentary on uh, national assessment, there's been a confusion of measurement and logistical issues. So there have been problems with the marking in terms of getting bits of paper around the system, but that's logistics. There have been problems with the marking in terms of reliability, and that's measurement. But very often the two things have been confused. And so a breakdown in the system is often confusedly reported as something which strikes at the heart of fundamentally national assessment. In fact, it's just been handled badly, some administrative aspect of the test has been handled badly. And conversely, the same, whole, the same applies. There's been a crisis in national testing, i.e., we failed to get the papers back. is confused with some issue to do with the measurement ca- properties of the tests. And really, I do want to separate those out in terms of the history. It's also not easy to, to answer the question, well, just how many tests are there? That, that's actually a pretty... And it's even more complicated to ask how much it costs us all as taxpayers. That's because there are statutory tests, non-statutory tests, there are commercial tests, which kids when they come home say to their parents, I did a SAT today, but what they actually did today was a CAT today, or an NFER reading test, or a school test. Yeah, how, how do we cost all of that? Do we cost in the times of teachers of constructing their own tests? Because that's part of National Assessment too at Key Stage 1. It's not easy. That's what the Independent said in 2009, on the 10th of March. And it's not a bad estimate for the number of compulsory mandated tests laid down in law. But um, I kid you not, these are pretty useless in terms of understanding what went on. Um, There was some very interesting stuff. Wait for it, here comes the slide but at least it's legible. I I exploited the fact there's a big screen and you're very close to it. Um, There's some very interesting stuff here, for example. The 1990 pilot test. Does anybody remember the tank of water test with the rubber ball and the brick? Sylvia does. There's a very... (laughs) Interesting. One of the first tests was... really drove down the road of authenticity and trying to get high validity and alongside reasonable reliability. So it was a a well-specified activity, well-specified in as much as it was specified in a lot of detail. Teachers had to set it up, they had to get a tank of water, they had to put water in the tank, they had to find a rubber ball and they had to find a brick. And the child had to predict which would float and which would sink. Okay, entirely consistent with the statement of attainment in that part of the national curriculum. There's a brilliant video which you can occasionally find, but it comes and goes on the web of a teacher struggling a bit, because the ball actually is so big that it touches the bottom of the tank. Um, and so therefore, they give a very strong visual clue to the child as to, this, this, will this float or sink? It, do you think it will float? Um, it took hours. Um, it used up huge amounts of time, because, of course, you had to put each kid through it. And, of course, by the time a few kids had done it, of course the other kids knew what would happen. Okay so but it's a nice example of how the contradictions of trying to pursue authenticity in a kind of a meaningful activity which would engage with the young person can fail on the grounds of manageability and uh, a- a- adequate management and control I'm, unfortunately I'm going to take you through all of this um and this is one of my main slides and it's Assessment and not curriculum. So there, of course, were loads of changes to the curriculum. We can basically say there were some phases of the curriculum. Here, vast overload, 14 attainment targets in mathematics, hundreds of assessment points in each key stage, a crisis which was met by the 1995 Deering report of revisions to the national curriculum, which limited the number of national curriculum levels to 8 rather than 10. The national curriculum effectively went up to the beginning of Key Stage 4 rather than the end of Key Stage 4, thus avoiding the head-on collision of the national curriculum with the content of GCSEs. Um, In the slimming of the national curriculum, there was also an attempt to slim national curriculum assessment. And crucially, I would argue, along with Diane, that there was a move from criterion referencing to criterion-related approaches in respect to the assessment. No longer were the tests designed to be absolutely criterion-referenced against the statements of attainment of which there were hundreds. Rather, the tests were referenced against the programmes of study and some level descriptors. Now this really is very important and I'll come on to how important that was in just a moment. But I'm going to take you through this now just very briefly because it's a true history. You can't... It speaks for itself in terms of its structure by the events which it contains rather than slipping into some simple representation of a life cycle. So we had the Education Reform Act, direct control of the curriculum, tests at 7 11, 14, and teacher assessment, GCSEs um, to pick up national certification and school leaving at 16. We had development of the pilot tests... Um, Lots of political acrimony between different organisations. In the Institute of Education, the test development group was shunned by the rest of the organisation because it was felt that it capitulated to a Tory government. In 92, roughly, we can say, the first system-wide implementation of the tests, and in 93, an immediate teacher's boycott. Now, this was really serious stuff. If you're a government, you don't want the police, hospitals or teachers to go out on strike. It's a nightmare. And... Of course, the legal basis of, of striking had been really tightened up. This was a legal strike, and it created real fear in the heart of government. And governments since then have actually lived in fear of another teacher boycott, and it's been recently threatened again, of course. In 95, there was the very poorly reported first crisis in national data collection, where the results just didn't come in because of logistical problems in the administration of the tests. Now, at that point, um, a figure emerged, David... Uh, Hawker, who wrote to the rescue in terms of the then Scar management of these processes, and Nick Tate was incredibly grateful to what David did. He did a very good job in getting everything together and the results out on time. And David then became, um, for very much for his a reward for his efforts, um, the leader of the uh, test development enterprise within um, Scar and then QCA on its formation in 97. There was the 95 Deering review, and Deering was the great fixer. He knew, and he said in public, although not necessarily on record, that what he'd done was a short-term fix. But he was pleased with what he'd done. He'd got through the crisis. The teachers were happy, government was happy, and the department was happy. He knew that what he'd done might not last forever, but that it was a good compromise. Um... And some of the problems which he didn't tackle have come since home to roost. In 97, there was a second crisis in national data collection, which meant that the, a, a completely parallel marking process had to be set up. The contractor eventually, essentially failed. And an entirely new contract had to be set up to complete the marking again. Although there were slight delays, everything went, went out on time. <coughs> um... Compulsory baseline assessment was introduced, which really took national assessment down lower. So we we had increased not only in the density of national assessment over time, but it creeping lower and lower into the system, down into early years, down into the foundation stage. And we had elements that kept on being introduced into national assessment, more and more bits. Shakespeare, additional reading tests, which were previously um, only optional, became compulsory. Mental mass was introduced as a new component. All all, all, each... each thing individually sensible. Um, each with its own rationale. I'll say seemingly sensible, actually, rather than sensible. Each thing seemingly sensible in its own terms. Each with its own rationale. Each argued through the policy process and incorporated. Separate score for reading and writing in English. More and more bits being added up to what says or what makes us say that a child is level four in maths at the age of 11. Then we had the independent scrutiny of national assessment tests for primary schools, the Rose Report. Now, why did we have that? We had that because there was a view, and it, was, and it caused a, cr- a press crisis, that the cut scores were being tampered with by government. What wasn't noticed is the cut scores had actually moved more under the Conservatives than they had under Labour. and It was only Judith Judd as a as the independent correspondent at that time, who spotted that. And she reported that well. There'd been a a kind of feeding frenzy amongst journalists that, look, these cut scores vary. That means that government must tell QCA where they should be, be to get a certain proportion of kids through so that it appears that standards are rising. The Rose Report said, uncontrovertibly, that there was no direct political interference in the cut scores in any one year in order to ensure that the government was achieving its stated performance targets. Remember that Blunkett had actually staked his resignation, his career, on whether the the, uh, targets at 11 would actually be met. What was interesting in the Rose Report is that when he looked at script scrutiny and use of data in respect of the level threshold setting, which is the crucial event in terms of determining how many kids get what in a given year, he actually expressed surprise at the amount of data which was used. Now, that, that was very interesting and quite odd from the measurement community point of view. Mick and Alex in my team, Mick Quinlan and Alex Shuraskin, did a brilliant paper, which I've got and will be on the website. It's a public paper, which was given 99 in Beera. It was the first public description of the way in which national testing operates, and brilliant it is too, and I commend it to you. It's a brilliant paper. Not many people have read it, not many people have of its existence. It's brilliant. It just outlines how things are done. And also made a series of recommendations because they felt, in, contra- in contrast to Rose, that not enough use was made of data. Blunkett ordered a review of Key Stage 1 and Key Stage 2. Alex did another paper, on the TA test relationship, which showed, interestingly, there is no relationship. He actually applied every possible statistical test he could to the relationship between the score which a teacher gave a child and a score that the test gave a child in terms of their national curriculum level. Over time, he could find no relationship, apart from in those schools where the correlation was at 100%, because they did their TA after they got their test results back. I'll let that sink in. Um, In 2003 revised Key Stage 1 and Foundation Stage where Key Stage 1 effectively became teacher assessment with tests available to actually be used as some kind of, of weak moderation of teacher assessment. Then we had the third crisis in National Data Collection which was a Key Stage 3 English crisis in terms of marking and the scripts didn't go out if you remember. That the results didn't go out until September. Interestingly, in law, they are supposed to be supplied by schools by September, but everybody expects them in, in before the, the end of the um, spring, at uh, the summer break, of course. Um, first working version of the code of practice. What? You mean from two thousand, from nineteen ninety two? to 2004, there was no code of practice for National Curriculum Assessment correct. It was only because I suggested one, and Paul and Helen Patrick wrote it, in consultation with all the divisions in QCA, that there was a code of practice. Up until recently, QCA has been both the developer and administrator of tests, with a test being developed by contracted agencies under contract to QCA and the regulator of those tests. Now, I'll spend a couple of minutes on this. This means that Ken Boston in the morning had to tell himself off for what he'd done, if there was a problem. Now, we said to Ken there was a prima facie conflict of interest in him being Chief Executive of QCA and Chief Executive of NAA. And when he first came to QCA, he was committed to separating the two organisations. And indeed, they started to separate. But when there was a crisis, particularly in 2004, he brought the two organisations so closely together he said he would reprimand anybody who referred to the NAA as a separate organisation. Again I'll come back to it. This is really crucial in terms of governance. Then there was the Statistics Commission report which actually picked up the Timms report, the Massey report, of which uh, uh, Sylvia was a principal author, and um, Peter Timms had been commissioned by the, the National Statistics Commission uh, to look at the outcomes of national curriculum assessment and say, Are the, is the trajectory of standards in the education system, the picture of standards which they give rise to, actually faithful to the reality of what's going on in schools? And Peter Thames concluded no. He cited the Massey report as part of the evidence. And I wrote an open letter to the Justice Commission which actually confirmed the confidence that we had in the Massey report. Now, I'll pause here slightly... This all sounds very negative, and it's very easy with hindsight to say that there are substantial problems, in as complex a system as national testing. Now, I believe that all of the developers who have been involved at QCA in the development of of national tests have acted in incredibly good faith. They're very good technicians and they've worked extremely hard. They've commissioned some very insightful and innovative research to support and develop processes. But I think there have been accumulated problems. And I think that government and QCA were slow to act. And I think looking back at what happened and why is very important in terms of assuring that we get a a national curriculum assessment process in future that's fit for purpose and has appropriate levels of public accountability. I'm certainly aware that there are differences of views. So, for example, Chris Wettner at NFER gets pretty fed up with me and pretty fed up with Sylvia, for actually enumerating the problems that we've got intrinsic to national curriculum assessment, because he says, actually, you know, in terms of the types of tests which we're commissioned to do, the technical performance of the test in measurement terms is pretty damn good, and is probably inter- internationally state-of-the-art. And I don't disagree with that. But I'm minded of the kind of findings of, of, of people like Warwick Mansell because people like Warwick have sat in the audience at conferences and just said, you know, hang on a minute, you know, are you aware of what's going on in schools in terms of teaching to the test? Are you aware of the extent to which testing is dominating the curriculum? Do you understand what's happening in pupils' lives? Are you aware of the weight of accumulated evidence in respect to the curriculum washback effect combined with the measurement problems associated with these tests? And I think the weight of evidence was accumulating an insufficient action was taken. And I think that's where we are with national tests. And I'll come on to SLTs in just a second. We had dinner with um, a minister and we knew that something was cooking last year. There had been the enormous crisis in the administration. Let's face it, it's nothing to do with measurement. The administration of the national test last year. A meltdown, a crisis, whatever you like to call it. We knew there was something in the offing, but we did not think it would be immediate cessation of Key Stage 3 testing. Um, and then of course we had the expert group, and they recommended cessation of science at Key Stage... Oh, Key Stage 2, I'm sorry, that's a typo. And an annual sample-based survey in order to establish national testing, underlying national standards of the kind that we've been advocating for nearly two decades. Okay, that's it in terms of the history. Now I've got a lot more slides and I'm going to re-rattle through them, but these are the evidence which link to all those points. These are national curriculum levels. What I'm going to argue for is levels need overhauling in terms of uh, measurement. They need to be looked at with a great deal of critical thought. That was the original TGAT recommendation, a series of broad levels, which as a parent you'd get some feedback from your school as to where your kid was in relationship to national expectations for age and stage. Very, very sensible. Um, but the moment you produce something like that, you get artefacts and you get problems associated with those artefacts when you start to operationalize it. But in, as a concept, it's, it's not a bad idea. Some kind of overall statement of a child... Whether they're in line with your expectations of their progression. You need to know that as a parent. You need to know that as a teacher. It's, it's not a bad idea. Um, and in 1995, there was a move from statements of attainment to programs of study and level descriptors. Now, this is, and, you know, it's not a complex diagram, but it's, it's, there's a lot to it. These, these are the levels, so that's, that's a key um, cut score or th- level threshold between three levels level, we'll just call it level one, two, and three just for the moment. So, so obviously, there's a lot of action around there in terms of getting it right, because, and there's a lot of kids, so, you know, you get it wrong by a small percentage, you, you'll get an awful lot of kids wrongly classified. Uh, Dylan argues there's between 30 and 40% misclassification at Key Stage 3. Um, there's a lot of discussion about how he gets those figures, but let's just use that as a ballpark figure th- for the moment. That's very, very high. Um... But and we're looking for one or two percent movement each year in terms of the kind of trajectory and standards that is realistic in an education system of our kind. so it's quite possible that measurement error will swamp actually any real movement and standards. very serious. and of course, we had statements of attainment, so kids were supposed to be able to do these specific things. but by really sort of, you know late late 1990s, what we got were marks so these thresholds were determined in terms of marks. And quite recently, there's been work trying to find levelled items. You know, this is a level six question. And that, that is a discourse which exists amongst the officers in the subjects in various organisations. But the point is, that's, it's just not borne out by the measurement characteristics of these items. There's a conclusion that there really isn't such a thing as a level six item. It's just not that simple. And so you, you, you cross this threshold. If you you may have done all sorts of stuff at different levels, but you got enough marks to move from there to there. So it is kind of kind of you know weakly criterion referenced. It's you know, or Lyman referenced, whatever you want to call it. But it's not criterion referenced in the in the in the way in which we originally set out. Now, do we want criterion referencing? That's the key thing. Do we actually want to try and achieve it? Do we want? some meaningful statement around this child is at level four um, in terms of our national curriculum assessment arrangements. And that's a question we've got to ask. That's where we are with national testing. I think we've got to ask that question. There are all sorts of other issues around this diagram, but I'll move on quickly. Oh, that's a real... That's, that's real data from borderline effects. In, this is Key Stage English 1998. Uh, hang on a minute. I don't often see that kind of stuff as a test developer. What's going on here in these peaks? Borderlining. And borderlining was introduced to the notion that there might be some error, for example, in English marking, around the cut scores. So let's remark all of those that are within three or four marks below the border. Oh, by the way, we won't think much about those that are above it, that we should, for example, mark and perhaps readjust downwards. So, unsurprisingly, that's what you get this vast population that moves from there to there. And it's big. There are thousands of kids in those peaks. And um, it's not a very justifiable approach. It was questioned. QCA took years to get rid of it. And of course, when you do get rid of it, you'll most likely see a slight diminution of attainment. And that diminution could equal the the amount of gain that you would like to see in terms of underlying educational attainment. It's the kind of thing which would cause press stories. Look, standards are going down. The reason it didn't cause any hoo-ha at all was, yes, it was withdrawn last year. So it's not surprising that it was swamped by the marking crisis. Um, Measurement error and the problems with overlaying levels onto marks. Um, I've outlined some of those issues in terms of the the first diagram. But there's also this... Um, which gives rise to a very interesting thing. Do we want levels? Do we want to say this kid's at level four in mathematics at 11? Is that useful? Ian would say it's incredibly unuseful now because actually we spend huge effort generating levels and then spending huge effort breaking them back down again to try and make sense of them. What schools are interested in is which questions have these kids done well in? And they like to get the tests back in order to do exactly that. So what are levels about? And look, these two children are closer together in terms of their attainment than this child and this child, even though this child and this child has got the same national attainment level because these represent two years of attainment. And actually, this may be the value added for you as an institution in terms of how you're judged outside, so you want to know what's going on there. And if that child is misclassified as being that rather than that, that's going to really severely affect your value added. So that's why, in terms of reports of maladministration, teachers phoning up QCA in terms of this child's got the wrong score, there have been a number of, there's increasing, there's been growth in the number of calls which is saying this, this child has got the wrong level and it's too high a higher level. All interesting questions, and that's why we have got 4A, 4B, 4C, because you need more analytic bite than levels actually give you. OK, QCA practice and test development. Um, there have been massive problems of officers actually changing the tests after the 2nd pretest. do Don't do it, but they do. I don't know whether they still do, but they were certainly doing it when I left in 2006. These were... Sorry, these were accumulated problems, um, and there are about... Hang on a minute. How many are there? 11. Uh, which I summarised when I left QCA and actually... Um, examined in a bit more detail. Um, Borderlining should have been removed. There should have been an explanation for why it went on. It wasn't. It was withdrawn. Nobody noticed. There wasn't a scrutiny of it. Uh, Movement up and down in science at key stage three. Look at these figures. The overall numbers look fine, but the moment you looked at level six and above, there were some very odd things happening. 2005, look, 37%, 35%, 40%, 34%. 33%, Um, hang on, are kids really getting that much better and that much worse over a time frame like that? Is that plausible? And when I talked... I mean, the moment we saw those figures internally in QCA, we thought, hang on a minute, you know, what is going on? And so I asked everybody... I just went and asked subject officers. Each subject officer gave a different explanation for why this was the case. They said, no, I, no it's very, very clear why that's the case. We introduced, introduced a whole series of new training materials. They were unfamiliar to teachers. Um, that's why we had these, these peculiar dips here. Um, and then I went to the department and got an entirely different, equally definitively stated, entirely different explanation. Um, very, very peculiar. Um... Then there was a the Massey report which said um, it was OK in Key Stage, key stage 1 uh, Level 2 English, um, OK in mathematics, um, not OK in Key Stage 2 English, not OK in Key Stage 2 science, and not OK in Key Stage 3 mathematics. In other words, the uh, data, through a sophisticated triangulation survey, suggested that there had been inflation, underlying inflation in the figures. What was remarkable, and discussing it with uh, journalists, is that despite the fact that QCA didn't publish the report because it contained difficult material for over two years, and only um, published it when I wrote the open letter to the Statistics Commission, it contained incredibly good news that the majority of the gains which the government could lay claim to were real. But the organisation was so concerned about the negative findings that it refused to publish the report. Um, there, are isu- there, are, there are certainly issues in terms of the weakness in the Ofsted regime because the, the Ofsted regime has increasingly become dependent on the data in national assessment. And if there are problems in that in terms of measurement error, in terms of the right kids being given the right level, and in terms of then scrutinising schools, that's serious. It's not exactly, I described it not exactly as being built on a, on a house of cards, but it's not using reliable, sufficiently reliable evidence in its inspection processes. And then there's this. Why do teachers say there's an assessment overload and then elect to use loads of non-statutory tests? CAT, NFER Nelson reading tests, Suffolk reading, and so on and so on. Dozens of them. Barry Creasy and I did a review of how many there were. Loads and loads. Midges, Alice, Yellis, all of those. And then we've got the merits of middle of key stage testing rather than end of key stage testing. The kind of... As it were, fight that goes goes on over the value added in terms of performance tables is really very debilitating in the system. That's why Wales, under the Doherty Review, suggested that national testing should occur in the middle of key stages because then the gains are owned, or the losses, are owned by the school concerned or the institution concerned. If you have the testing at the end of a key stage, then there are real problems in terms of ownership. And very often, Key Stage 3 schools avow a very strong mistrust of Key Stage 2 results. Justified or not, the majority of them say they don't trust the Key Stage 2 results. It's very serious that they don't. Whether they're right or or so not to do, it's undermining of the system that they don't. Just rely on teacher assessment. That's been advocated by a load of academics. outside any understanding of how teacher assessment is conditioned by the system in which it's located. Um, And so you can't just say, let's rely on teacher assessment, because there's no such thing as the characteristics of teacher assessment. There's teacher assessment as it is actually undertaken in a particular set of system conditions, something we're exploring here. Then there was a problem with the Key Stage 3 ICT project, which heralded a new world of online authentic testing, um, and that was effectively cancelled by government. And, of course, I would say preeminent in all of this is teaching to the test. I could talk about that for a very long time. All I'm going to say is that's what is so debilitating in so many schools and is so debilitating in so many children's experience, which we believe, on the basis of substantial evidence, gives rise to surface learning, which doesn't persist. For example, doesn't persist in the summer after the Key Stage 2 tests. What have we got, then? OK, a view from the inside. We've got a lack of resolution of governance issues. Okay, failure to have a code of practice to make it publicly accountable. Failure to actually separate out regulation from actually doing the stuff. Operation without without accountability in that regard. Pressure from publication, interestingly enough. So when Mick and Alex published at Beera, when I published the, the commission, the open commission to the... Uh, the, sorry, the open letter to the Statistic Commission, then things started to change. But it was only when we published them that things started to change. So poor publication record and a very, very slow to act in implementing recommendations. Massey report, majority of the, implement- the recommendations, still not implemented, two years after the report had been received. Borderlining, not removed for years, or at least confronted. And constant innovation... Are the national tests failing our children? Diana Hines, Independent, 9th of May, 1996. On Tuesday morning this week, Rush Common County Primary School in Abingdon, Oxfordshire, addressed itself in a mood of weary resignation to the task of getting its 69 seven-year-olds through their tests. Next week, its 11-year-olds will also be engrossed in the tests, which occupy a large amount of the school's time and effort and necessitate much jiggling of timetables so that teachers can cover for one another as they test small groups. Since the first standard assessment task, now it's called Tests, began five years ago, John Fisher, the head teacher, says there has been nothing but change. Each year they've altered things and tried to refine the tests a bit more. Even now they're not exactly what I would call manageable in terms of the time they take up, but this year the government has got to say this is it and not make any more changes. Tinkering with the tests has resulted in a shifting of standards. This year, for instance, it will be harder to achieve a level one in the English test for seven-year-olds which will require firm evidence of reading ability. Eleven-year-olds will also have to take a fuller range of scientific knowledge and skills to gain a level five. External markers brought in last year for the first time will this year be subject to more rigorous training to ensure that previous lapses in consistency will not be repeated. And there have been ambiguities in previous tests, says Mr Fitcher, such as whether calculators could be used. This year, for the first time, eleven-year-olds will sit a non-calculator paper in mathematics. Now, the important thing is the majority of these changes were implemented for entirely good reasons at the time, but they all amounted to change. And things like improving the accessibility of the tests... I mean, the English tests looked far, far better four years into the testing regime. But what what, what impact does access have on underlying standards? Are the tests getting easier? What does access mean in terms of standards? An unanswered question. The P-scales were introduced, that's a good thing, to try and actually look at the achievement of people not achieving the lowest level in the national curriculum. Additional data was used in the level level setting, very, very sensible, a move that we advocated strongly in research. But would change the kind of measurement characteristics associated with the decisions around le- le- um, level threshold setting. Massive agency refinement of the test development processes. So we found that they begun to use very different processes in developing the tests and in developing the pre-test data. But none of that was catalogued, because there hadn't been a code of practice. And only the agencies knew what was actually going on. Optional extension tests had come and gone. Optional tests were introduced, which schools curiously liked, even though they were identical to mandatory tests. What? Why was that the case? Well, because the optional tests could be used when the the, the schools so chose, and they could use the results in the way in which they wanted very interesting finding and then we had APP or MPP as it first was named monitoring pupil progress now assessing pupil progress a process of structured teacher assessment in relationship to the national curriculum It now has a very important structural position there are massive benefits of having a national curriculum I believe Finland reaps the benefits of a national curriculum they had one for 120 years um, they did pretty well in pearls in, in Pisa we think there are un- un- uncontrovertible benefits of national assessment. There are also strong deficits related to assessment. I've enumerated them. And we we collated them in a submission to government. So where are we now? Well, we we developed some alternative models, and we think they should be checked out. I've talked about those before, but basically a a sample-based model which could be valid down to school level, which you could use to moderate teacher assessment, you could have teacher assessment, not moderate it much, have a national survey for underlying standards, and really gear up your inspection service to be a school improvement service, which would be good. It would achieve the same objectives, but very different kind of format. And then you could have computer-based adaptive testing uh, on demand, um, and that would, that would do the job as well. I'll come on to the functions in a minute. It's vital to have clarity regarding the purposes. Formative feedback to parents, robust evidence on national standards, provision of school accountability. And there we think you've got to recognise that teacher quality is absolutely preeminent. That explains more variance than anything else in terms of children's attainment. So when we talk about school accountability, we're actually talking about improving the performance of individual teachers. And we think those three models would all deliver that, but in a very different form. We can't understand why the government hasn't put in place parallel development processes for different models, because all of these would take time, probably longer than an individual term of office for a government. That's why they tend to be not very keen on implementing them. But we should be exploring these, these different approaches. They are potentially very robust and very interesting. What about single-level tests? Now, this is the last five minutes, really. Um, I will take an hour, which means a slight overrun in terms of half-past. They're part of a system. They're not Single-level tests don't just exist by themselves. Um, And they were introduced through consultation um, 2006 um, after a discussion between ministers and advisers over a Christmas period. And um, 400 schools, 10 local authorities, uh, 64,000 children in the pilot when when it was first set up. And the idea was that you'd have tests for a particular level, say level 6, and they could be taken by a child when they reach level 6. Um, but in fact, they're available twice a year. So it's kind of on demand, but only twice a year. Th- th- those are the, um, the kind of characteristics. That's what we see on the website at the moment. Okay. With the cessation of key stage 3 testing, one of the biggest problems of, of single-level tests was removed. And I know, come on to it, no, this, is, this is what's on some of the QCA literature. And I mean, that's good. I mean, it wasn't too hard it wasn't too easy. It was just right. It was my kind of test and worked well for me. That's great. I mean, that would be brilliant if we could have tests of which children would, would say that off. I mean, that would be, that would be great. It would be fantastic. I think this grossly, grossly misrepresents the reality of what's going on in measurement terms for SLTs. For the following reasons. There were highly critical consultation responses. I'm afraid we said at Cambridge Assessment they won't work. And we we don't think they'll work for a a very good series of reasons. Very, very good series of reasons. The Key Stage 2 and Key Stage 3 curricula are different. Um, And as a result, there is no such thing as Level 6 at any age. And that... Effects also, I mean, so, so you can't have tests that can be using key stage 2 and key stage 3 because the curriculum are different. You can't have them because actually to be level 4 at 11 is not the same as, sorry, these buttons are so close together, um, are not the same as being level 4 at 14. There, you are well below the average expectation. There, you are at the average expectation. The purposes of Key Stage 2 and Key Stage 3 testing are different in terms of, of what they're supposed to be doing in the system. In the pilot, national, curriculum, national assessment arrangements were not to be suspended, even though you could suspend them under the powers to innovate. So all of the existing orthodoxies in relationship to national assessment would apply in terms of the behaviours of teacher. And we saw that in other experiments on assessment, these over-dominated assessment arrangements and took ages to decay highly dependent on accurate entry decisions. You, you, you've got to decide that a kid's already level 6 to put them into the level 6 test. If, if, they don't, if they're not at level 6, if they're at level 5, and they fail, they would have to take another test. Uh, uh, that really needs to sink in, OK? So you've got to get the entry decision right. If they're excessively good and they're level 7, they'll get a high score on their level 6, but they won't get a level 7. They'll just get level 6. That's one of the implications of SLTs. And so a whole set of implications flow from that. Where the hell do you put the pass mark? Is it all level 6 material, on which they get 50%? Is that genuinely level 6? And so on and so on and so on. Now, even at the point of the December award of the first test, some of those fundamental questions were not addressed, had not been answered. They may have been addressed but not answered. And, And, of course when people said it's going to be easier and more efficient and will reduce the burden of testing, sorry. So you've got three tests for where you originally had one. So it's a lot more expensive to produce. Um, You'll have more people failing because they'll be misclassified. Of course there'll be misclassification and error. So there'll be people wrongly entered because the teacher got the, the level wrong of the child... Because teacher assessment is not as reliable as one might hope, and also there will be kids who will just will be will be you know bad on the day but whatever will happen there'll be loads more retakes than there are now because if a kid is genuinely level six and, and, and sits a key stage three test a key stage two test and sorry key, level six key stage three and doesn't do as well as they think they'll still get a level out of it so so the notion of a dramatic decrease in cost and and decrease in complexity is just not true. We just can't see it empirically. So the claims that that SLTs will reduce the overall amount of testing in the system, not true. Uh, The amount of testing will, we think, undoubtedly go up. By how much, we can't can't actually tell. Um, They're more efficient, no, because they'll demand loads more tests to be produced. You need a much bigger pre-testing population. Um, And so on and so on. They're only notionally more efficient. Many more tests have to be produced each year. They can be used as an accurate measure (coughs) of national educational standards. Absolutely not the case, because it relies on the entry decisions of teachers. Now, I can't believe that there won't be fashions. If you implement SLTs across the system as a whole, in some years, teachers will try and take They'll, they'll, they'll take a bet, and they'll put in loads of kids that are not really up to level five, but they'll put them in for the level five test, because that will look good in terms of their school. And um, <coughs> lo and behold, a large proportion of them crash and burn. And, of course, then they, all the kids have to reset. So they've taken a risk. It's all gone badly wrong. The rumour mill gets going. The messages go out through the system. So next year, teachers are conservative about their entry decisions. Now, the point is that that, that that means that things will be all, all over the place in terms of the measurement characteristics of those tests in relationship to national standards. SOTs will be a less dominating force and will support assessment for learning. Now, the, the, AF, uh, the assessment reform group are a bit angry about this because they can't see that the totality of arrangements in the Making Good Progress pilots, which include payment by results, intensive t- tuition for those not making enough progress and so on, they can't see that that constitutes uh, a compliance with the principles of assessment for learning. And so, taken together, we certainly believe that APP, because you have to have assessment and pupil progress in place to make sure that teachers are giving the right, the right level to a child to get them in for the SLT, will constitute less of assessment burden than they have now. I'll come on to that in just a second, the total assessment burden. But I also can't believe that in September a teacher will not go straight into school thinking, my goodness, what kids do I need to put in now? Because these tests will be available twice a year. You have to think about which kid is ready for them, whether you're making the right decision, whether the child will will actually genuinely be up to succeeding and not get the negative feedback of, a, of, of failing, and so on and so on. Now, I think, actually, SLTs will lead to... An, a, a vast increase in the domination of the curriculum by assessment. Will they resolve reliability problems in the current test? Well, I can't see how just having an SRT solves the problems of marking in English, although I understand that there are some interesting approaches that they've been able to commission by virtue of the funding that they've got around SLTs. SLTs will be motivating to learners because since they offer a one-way ratchet. Now, Chris Wetton definitely is very concerned about this, probably more concerned than I am, but it's unknown, really... Um, It's a potential problem because people can only move in one direction. So they'll always get a level... They'll they'll keep the level six if they get it early. But, of course, they may have got it early for a whole series of reasons. And they may drop back. And you want to know that educationally. If they have dropped back, you need to know. So the one way ratchet is potentially an educational issue. And SLTs will be a less stressful experience for learning. You failed level three again? (laughs) I don't think so. So... Yes, I think that quote is very, very interesting, and I think that's great. And if we can introduce much less stressful testing, great. But personally, I can't see it in terms of SLTs. Now, I could go into a lot more detail. I haven't got the time. You'll see why I haven't got the time in just a minute. Um, but where are we genuinely? You know, you know, we, we've got accumulated problems in the National Curriculum Assessment, which led to its cessation, a combination of administrative and measurement problems. Um, I think a failure to confront, really intellectually, some of those problems. So if you fail to confront the problems in your model, you're not going to be that good at developing something new. Um, Where are we? Um, OK, it's simple. There we are. Um, You know, that's it. Key Stage 2 tests are ticking over. We've got rid of Key Stage 3 and SLTs are being refined for implementation. So I'll stop now and hand over. Hang on a minute, I've got a final slide. Where are we with national assessment? That's where we are. I'm just going to run through this. And with your indulgence, um, Liz and Paul, I'm just going to run down this for about five minutes very, very quickly. When people say the new assessment model is SLTs, that's not the case. It's SLTs in conjunction with APP. Okay, and APP is quite a demanding approach it divides things into assessment foci. Children, which is a good thing, review their work through peer groups. Teachers actually review the work and they decide what level a child's operating at. Um, and that's used for the entry decisions. Um, there's kind of in- some internal moderation processes within the school. But it takes a lot of time. And it's based on these assessment focuses, foci, which are a respecification of the national curriculum. It's based on finding levels in material finding bits of evidence which m- signal levels. And I think we've got to look at whether that's right. We've got to look at the level of classification error in APP, and I believe that, that, that an evaluation is about to be commissioned, which is a really good thing. But the, the, the total assessment model is APP plus SLTs plus the expert group's recommendation of a sample-based model for measuring national standards. That's the assessment model. So when we look at washback effect and load and cost... That's what we've got to take as the unit. We've got refined test development processes for Key Stage 2. Chris is absolutely right. They are very refined. For their specification, they are very refined and work well in measurement terms. We've got widespread use of tests other than national assessments. The assessment load is APP plus SLTs plus a national survey plus all the other tests which schools pay for and use and those which they set internally. That's the reality of the assessment load. And it's enormous. Continued curriculum washback at Key Stage 2, a final year often dominated by shallow teaching to the test. Seriously, we've got competing assessment paradigms. Assessment for learning has been appropriated by the policy community as a label, but is not alive and well in formal arrangements. It is being pursued in research, it's being pursued in teacher training by certain organisations, but it, it it doesn't occupy a central position in our national assessment arrangements. There is escalating concern over the construct base. I've talked about levels. I believe we should really revisit levels. Are they an appropriate form of measurement and are they an appropriate form of reporting? Complexities of age and stage are finally being confronted alongside... Levels, But, you know, to be a level 4 at 16 is a serious matter. And we've got to understand what we should do by way of these kind of pupils for their learning and for their assessment. We've got possible withdrawal of key stage, uh, science at Key Stage 2. The expert group's recommendation have, I understand, been accepted by government. So the possible introduction of an annual national sample-based survey... Why annual, I'm not sure. I don't think you need to do it every year. Um, but we desperately need it. I mean, as a minister, I'd want it. I'd want that to give me, probably valid down to LEA level, an absolute cast-iron view of what's happening in terms of underlying educational standards. I'd want to be able to test innovations through that. And I'd want to be able to understand where I stood internationally against PISA, Pearls and TIMS using the data from that. There are further problems emerging in the administration arrangements for Key Stage 2 this year in terms of, of yet again, an apparent marking crisis. But, you know, if you've got the press crawling all over you, you're going to find something. Um, SLTs, I should add, the administration this year, this June, despite the pilots having been commissioned in 2006, this is the first cycle of the latest model. There has not yet been two cycles of a stable model of SLTs. And lo and behold, in the first cycle, it's been reported that there were massive differences in the attainment of Key Stage two and Key Stage 3 children on the same items, in terms of the measurement performance of those items. The Key Stage 2, Key Stage 3 curriculum issue. Increase in AAP, APP, but not mandatory, and QCA has had to write to schools to say that it's not mandatory because of concerns voiced by the teacher unions, because of the workload that it represents. The proposal to move key stage testing to the start of key stage three, an announcement by Michael Gove. Professional associations sensing that national assessment are in retrenchment, therefore threatening teacher strikes, possibly just to put the wind up the government in terms of overall control of the curriculum. I mean, it's a serious matter, the issue of control. And, and, And if teacher associations sense that control is up for grabs, then they will move to increase accountability in terms of assessment arrangements, in terms of schooling, in terms of the curriculum, in terms of their members' involvement, in terms of parental involvement in the shape of those arrangements. So sensing retrenchment could mean a shift in control. Increased emphasis on use of test outcomes by Ofsted, something which is, personally, I'm concerned about. Lack of consensus regarding the Rose review recommendations for the primary curriculum. I think there is a vacuum at Key Stage 3. We do need to have solid assessment in terms of pupil progress at Key Stage 3 because in so many systems there is a dip. We did an international survey that showed there is a dip. There's a lot going on in terms of maturation of children. You need to monitor their progress. They're transferring from one form of schooling to another, from primary to secondary. You've got to keep a handle on how they're doing and spot those that are bright but falling apart and so on. Potential movement of GCSE and AS downwards... Because of the key stage 3 vacuum, that's a serious matter for us as a board. What do we do about younger kids who want to take GCSE early or want to not do GCSE at all and take AS? The potential model of APP plus SLTs plus an annual survey plus all the other tests, that's the reality of it. There are nascent control issues emerging. There's a sense of stuff being up for grabs and therefore an unpredictability about how it will pan out. And regulatory uncertainty about the total model. I've talked to colleagues of... Oh, now ex-colleagues of Paul about who should be in charge of regulating APP. And it's, it's a question that, that qual are confronting, whether it's, whether it's actually right or not that they should regulate it. Should they regulate or not the other tests which school use, which are commercially purchased? And the absence of parallel development of long-term options. All the eggs at the moment are in the SLT basket... And I don't think its measurement characteristics are particularly well-proven as yet. It's only in its first cycle in terms of the latest model. Um, And government has a history of piloting something and halfway through the pilot saying, and by the way, this is what we're going to do. We need to keep an eye on that in terms of these particular pilots. I can't see why we can't ethically promote a series of, of different models of the kind which, I mean, we've got three, but there's bound to be more, and actually implement them on a basis where you can suspend statutory arrangements. You can get putative data for those schools for a while, so it doesn't muck up the LEA rankings. And actually see how these alternative arrangements behave in terms of the fundamental purposes of national assessment. So I'm afraid that's where we are. It's complicated. It's detailed. It doesn't kind of comply with any notion of, well, you know, getting it running it being steady state, and, uh, and then it decaying. It's been a system which has never been in steady state. It's always being messed around with. And in a sense, we therefore never quite understand how it works. And I think we need some stability, we need some decent piloting to genuinely understand how things work, both practically and in their administration and in their measurement, so we can actually get desirable rather than undesirable washback into the curriculum. In other words, get testing which genuinely support the aims of a very laudable national curriculum. Sorry about the overrun. Um, Over to questions. This is a podcast from Cambridge Assessment. For more downloads, visit cambridgeassessment.org.uk.